0: Hey, our topic tonight out of Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11, the king of the north and the king of the south. Now, how many have read this chapter in preparation for this and and tried to figure it out on your own? How many? Okay. All right. Okay, well, we've been doing it. So if if, if you've missed any of the Daniel 1 through Daniel 10, I encourage you to go back on shalomadventure.com and get caught up with all this because, again, as we move forward with Daniel 10, 11, 12, Uh, it's very important to have the foundation because they all build on each other. And so let's look at some of the principles that we've seen as we've been studying Daniel and as we go into Revelation. Uh, All the prophecies in Daniel and Revelation start at the time of the prophet and go to the end of time and on into eternity. In Revelation 2, Revelation is not just one book chronological. It's several prophecies in the one book, just like Daniel is several prophecies in the one book. Each prophecy repeats and expands. So we're gonna, now Daniel 11 is gonna repeat everything we learned in two and seven and eight and nine and it's gonna now repeat it and expand upon it. That's why it's important to have that foundation of the beginning chapters because it's like jumping into algebra without having first done multiplication and addition, right? So they build and build and build uh, upon each other. Uh, we're not talking about individuals. Uh, but nations, systems, and organizations. Even as the Bible talks about these nations and systems, organizations, it's not determining whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, or the people. It's not about people, it's just about these systems and how they were active in history, especially in relation to God's people and how they interacted with God's people, how they interacted with Israel and God's people as a whole. Um, <clears throat> And so, uh, and also the focus is the Messiah. The focus is not on those nations. So there could be saved people or lost people within Israel or, or these other nations, saved or lost. Again, the, the, the membership of a certain nation did not uh, condemn them nor save them automatically. Each one had to make their individual choice. But this is just the parts that they played, again, in history playing out. But the focus is not the nations, it's the Messiah. All the prophecies point to the Messiah, Not to the anti-Messiah, he's brought in a little bit, but the main focus of the chapter is the Messiah. Again, uh, like uh, we looked at Daniel 9, the main focus of that chapter is the Messiah, not the anti-Messiahs, some misinterpret that. And also then, the purpose is to know where we are, right? So it's not so much about the nations, it's not so much about the history of it, but for where we are in our history, so we can be ready for the last days because that's where all the chapters take us, is to the last days. And then lastly, the nations listed directly affect God's people and the Bible, right? Where the Bible's being printed, where the Bible's being distributed primarily. Uh, of course, it's going to the whole world, but where is it being received primarily? Where is it being uh, disseminated primarily? Uh, where is it being uh, printed and, and, again, received? That's the main focus of these scriptures. Um, it's not that the, because the, the Bible prophecies and the Bible as a whole, is not the history of the world. Uh, it's, it's certainly not the history of God. God goes way bigger and much more than, than uh, anything we understand here or the Bible talks about. it much bigger than that. But it's really just God's, the Bible is God, and these prophecies is about God's interaction with his people, those that are receiving him. Again, primarily, people all over the world are receiving him, but this is where the focus is of the scriptures. Okay, so... With that, uh, a little review of 2, 7, 8, 9, and getting into 10, 11. So Daniel 2 was the statue, head of gold, silver, bronze, iron, legs of iron and clay, feet of iron and clay, rather. And then a stone comes and destroys the whole statue. So four metals, five segments of the statue, and then a sixth aspect that comes in destroys the statue. Daniel 7 does the same thing, four different beasts, um, lion with eagle's wings, bear lifted up, four leopard with four heads and four wings, and a beastly beast with 10 horns, and then a little horn coming up, and three horns getting knocked out. Uh, so four beasts, but then a fifth segment, and then a sixth, the beast gets destroyed. Uh, and then in Daniel 8, uh, <clears throat> Babylon's already passed, and so we pick up at Medo-Persia, the ram representing Medo-Persia, then Greece with four horns, and then to the little horn, just like in Daniel 7, pagan Rome, and then Christianized Rome. And so these are the players that take place down to the history from Daniel's day all the way to the end of time. And then that little horn also, just like in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, that little horn also gets destroyed eventually. So that's, again, the quick review. Go back to the uh, ShalomAdventure.com and see the full messages on those so Daniel chapter 11 verse 1 also in the first year of Darius the Mede I even I stood up to confirm and strengthen him now I will tell you the truth behold three more kings will arise in Persia and the fourth shall be far richer than them all by his strength through his riches he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece okay so it starts with this word also Right? And so if it starts with the word also, what does that mean? What does that indicate? What's the also? Something else happened before right? And what else happened before it? It's a connection word, right? What's it referring to? What? Chapter 10, exactly. That's right. Chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, really all just one prophecy. And there's a good indication, that connecting word, right? So it connects us also. So you just finished the sentence. and says also. Really, so maybe that chapter delineation shouldn't have been done there, but whatever, that's where it was. So also, in the first year of Darius, to meet I, even I. Who's this I, even I? Right, that's right. It's this angel that meets with him in Daniel chapter 10, right? So this angel is just continuing on, right? And so that's another indication it's just a continuation because he doesn't identify who he is. Just says, I, well, we read chapter 10, so we know it's this, this angel that was speaking to Daniel. I stood up to confirm and strengthen him, right? And this is talking about this battle, which we looked at in Daniel 10, between the the, the, the prince of Persia and the, and the prince of the covenant, God's prince, our prince. Now I tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. So the rest of this verse here, what is the difference that you're already seeing? Three more per, kings out of Persia rise in Persia. The four shall be far richer than them all. Might his strength through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. How is that already different than chapter two, chapter seven, and chapter eight? Well, it's expanding, yes, but it's also very plain words. <laughs> it's not talking about beasts. It's not talking about a lion with eagle's wings. It's not talking about a, a, a ram flying across the earth, right? It, it's, uh, or a goat flying across the earth, right? It's not talking about heads of gold. It's very plain. He's saying three more kings will arise in Persia. What do you think is going to happen next? Three more kings are going to rise in Persia, right? And the fourth king is going to be richer than them all. What do you think is going to happen? The fourth one's going to be richer than them all, right? And then, by his strength he, and his riches, he's going to stir up all against the realm of Greece, right? So, who's going to fight against Greece? Persia, Persia exactly. And who the, who's Persia going to fight against? Greece. I mean, it just says it out there, right? It's just plain as day. In contrast to Daniel chapter two, Daniel chapter seven, Daniel chapter eight, right? So this chapter. There's no even interpretation at the end where Daniel's saying, I don't understand, and Gabriel having to interpret it for him. It's just right there. He's just laying it out very, very clearly. It almost looks like it's written after the fact. And there are some people who believe it was written after the fact. They can't believe that Daniel actually wrote it. It is so, so clear. So let's look at a little history. I got this uh, from a friend of mine, Scott Moore, where he got it from was a Uh, janitor at a a school that he was at um, and who put it together. It's that simple. I I wish I knew his name. I wish I remember his name, but I don't remember his name. Uh, But it's that simple. He put it together and so I'm going to use these notes here uh, because it's so nicely written. Three more kings will arise in Persia. These were the three kings that followed Cyrus, the current reigning king. They were Cambius, False Smyrdas, a usurper, and Darius I. The four shall be far richer and by his riches, by his strength and riches, he shall stir up against Greece. The fourth king's w- king was Xerxes Asharias in the book of Esther. He inherited the wealth from the previous kings who had acquired riches through conquest and tribute. Xerxes spent four years and a huge fortune assembling the largest army ever assembled to date, two and a half million men, and a huge fleet of ships. He attacked Greece only to be defeated at Salmius in 480 BCE. This defeat began the demise of the Persian Empire and the rise of Greece. All right, so there's again just a quick summary of history right there. Is that very similar to what we just read in in Daniel? Yeah. Now this is written today, looking at history books and putting it all together and getting all these names. But Daniel wrote it long before it took place. And almost written, again, same thing, word for word. Just very plain, very clear. The Bible is real. The Bible is truth. He lays it out. There'll be three kings. a fourth one will be rich. And he's going to attack Greece. Boom, 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 boom. Happens. Exactly as he said. Okay. Back to Daniel chapter 11, verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will, and when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken. Okay, who is this? Who is this mighty king who will rule with great, 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 (laughs) great dominion, and do according to his will, and when he has arisen, his kingdom is broken. Who's this? Alexander, good. You guys are great. All right, we, I can just—you know—we don't have to do this, right? You can just read it yourself, right? It's so simple, right? Alexander the, the Great, exactly. Alexander the Great. He a mighty king. He arises, right? As he's described in Daniel chapter eight, a large horn, a mighty horn on this on this uh, goat, strong, right? And when he gets to his strength, the horn gets broken. Here it just lays it out very clear. A mighty king. He comes, and when he's in his power, he shall be broken. Alexander the Great, by the age of, what, like, 33, he dies in a drunken stupor and uh, swallows his vomit and and suffocates, and uh, he dies. At his young age, he's conquering the world, he's at the height of his power, he's risen up, and then, boom, the whole thing gets broken. And then it goes into, actually, some more details and says it's broken up. When he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others beside these. All right, so this four winds of heaven, what does that sound like? Yes, where did we hear that before? The ram that goes flying across the... You have to go back to shalomaventure.com and look at Daniel chapter uh, 8. right? The ram, he's coming with a large horn. He's coming across the earth without touching the ground. He hits the... Uh, his ram, horn gets broken, and then what happens after his horn gets broken? Four horns come up in its place, and the four horns point towards what? The four winds of heaven. The exact same wording. The four horns point towards the four winds of heaven, and, and, uh, and, and in, in Daniel chapter 7, what was the beast that's represented by uh, Greece? A leopard with four wings and four heads, right, four wings and four heads, right, so here again, it says four winds of heaven, right, so the parallels are very clear, but not among his posterity. Right, so the the kingdom breaks up into four segments, right? And not to his sons, right? It breaks up into four segments because they say when he's dying, they ask him, uh, who's going to rule after you? And he says, the strongest. And so his generals battle it out, and they end up dividing up the kingdom, the empire, the four divisions of the Alexander's empire. We have uh, Ptolemy there in the south, Seleucus there, um, Cassandra, over the Greece area, and then there's Lysimus, something, whatever there, the other one, right? And so you have the four generals, they break up into four various different segments of the kingdom, just like Daniel prophesied. Four winds of heaven, it breaks up into four in the might of his power, his kingdom is broken and divided. Again, Daniel, God's showing this to Daniel hundreds of years in advance. It's going to be broken up and divided. And what happens? Alexander dies, broken up, divided into four winds of heaven. Four segments. Absolutely amazing. Also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes. And he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. So the king of the south. Now he gets introduced as the king of the south. For it said king of... It said Persia and Greece, and now we have this new description, the king of the south. And throughout the rest of the chapter, that's how it's going to be described as the king of the south. Now, the south one, obviously, is Ptolemy. Ptolemy is the area that uh, we now call Egypt, right? And so that's where he rules over, or that's the kingdom of the south, Ptolemy. And it continues that way until it gets replaced, and we'll see, but it still remains... From there, and Ptolemy becomes the name. That was the name of the general, and all or most of them after that continue with that name. So Ptolemy then becomes like the name, like king or president or Caesar. Right? It's really just a title that gets tacked on to their name. So we have a Ptolemy one, a Ptolemy two, a Ptolemy three. You know, and so they just keep on uh, with the posterity of that first general. Okay, and then we have the okay. So then verse. Six, at the end of some years, they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north and make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her and with him who she begot and with him who strengthened her in those times. Now, some versions of that last part there, it says, uh, with him who begot her, depending on, on how you translate it there. But there's some versions that have it this way, with him who she begot. Okay, so again, very, very clear words, right? So it starts there, at the end of some years, they shall join forces for the daughter of the king of the south, right? We already identified the king of the south as Ptolemy shall go to the king of the north, right? And so the king of the north was the Seleucis kingdom, right? We saw that, so you got now this king of the north. And so again, for the rest of the chapter, these are the two players, king of the north, king of the south. That's how they're identified anyway. They change because they get taken over, but, uh, but that's basically the titles that are given to them. And who do you think is in the middle between the king of the north and the king of the south? Israel. Israel's is right in the middle between the two, right? You see the line there? Yep, right there. That's Israel right there. So the Seleucid kingdom, and then there's a line right there in the Ptolemy kingdom uh, down on the south. So Israel's right in the middle, and when these two are warring at it, Israel is on the line. They are the ground zero. They are the, you know, the the, the division there. And and so they keep on getting trampled over and pulled, they're the rope in the middle of this tug of war between the king of the north and the king of the south, right? And it's not a great, pretty place to be, right? To, to be uh, the front line of a uh, battle continually for the next 2,000 years. But well, that's where they play. That's where they're at. And getting pulled, again, like the rope in this tug of war. And, uh, and maybe you feel like you're in the middle of it right now. You're in the midst of the battle. You're in the middle of something. You're in the middle between, you know, maybe, uh, maybe your parents, or maybe in the middle between your in laws, or, or between uh, your children, or between your, your spouse and another part of the family, or something at work between two friends, or you're in the middle of something, right? Maybe it's between your bills and your savings, right? You feel like you're being squeezed in the middle of it all, right? And uh, you're in the midst of it. And it's a horrible place to be. But nonetheless, God is there. And while the Ptolemies are all gone and the Seleucids are all gone, and at the end all these kingdoms will be nullified and done away once and for all, God's people remain. God is in the midst with us. Right, just as it described Yeshua, that he was cut off in the midst of the week, in the middle of the week. He was right there in the middle and he's right there in the middle with us today as well. He is in the middle of the battle. He is in the middle of the battle as we looked at last week between God and Satan. He's right there with us. We are in the midst of it and he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And so whatever you're going through right now, whatever pressures you're under right now, if you feel like you're on the firing line and you are the firing line, don't worry. God is with you. God will strengthen you. God will see you through this as well. And even for the long haul, and Israel's here on the line for the long haul through this whole king of the north, king of the south battle throughout these chapters and throughout history. So you're not alone. It's a good place to be. It might feel horrible, but it's the best place to be because that's where God is. And that makes it the safest place to be. So as we, read right here again, verse six, the end of some years they shall join forces. Who's gonna join forces, do you think? King of the South and the King of the North. Right, they're gonna join forces, right? And how's that gonna happen? This, ki- this daughter of the King of the South, she's gonna do what? She's gonna to go to the King of the North. And that's what it says. So, what do you expect's gonna happen? The daughter of the king of the South is gonna to go to the king of the north, right? And make an agreement together. That's what it says, right? but she shall not retain her power, neither her authority shall stand, neither he or her authority will stand. She shall be given up with those who brought her, with him who she begot. Okay, that's what it says. All right, so let's look at historical, the historian janitor who wrote to put this together. Okay, after the death of Seleucus I, the king of the north, a long and costly war ensued between Syria and Egypt. Those are the terms that they're now, right? Over the possession of Israel. And in an effort to bring about peace, a marriage was arranged between King Antiochus II of Syria, the north, and King Ptolemy's daughter, Bernice. King Antiochus of the north had a wife, Laodice. Antiochus divorced Laodice to marry Bernice of the south, and they bore a son. Antiochus didn't like Bernice, so after Bernice's father, king of Egypt of the south, died, Antiochus divorced Bernice and took Laodice back. Laodice used her royal powers and had Antiochus, Bernice, her attendants, and her little son all murdered. Is that just what we just read in in Daniel chapter 11, verse 6? The daughter of the south is going to go to the king of the north and make an agreement, right? A marriage covenant, a marriage agreement, a marriage contract together, right? But she's not going to stand, right? Because he doesn't like her. He divorces her after the agreement's not necessary anymore because the king of the south died, and so he doesn't need his daughter anymore, and so he divorces her goes back into other wife, and she will not stand, nor he with her, nor with her attendant to her with her, nor the one that she begot. Right? Very amazing. Absolutely amazing. Not so amazing that it happened, but it's so amazing that God showed it to Daniel. Just plain as can be. You know, it's easy to say, oh, a lion with eagle's wings, oh, that could be a helicopter or whatever, you know, you can make stuff up. But you can't make this stuff up. It's so plain. It's so clear. If anyone tells you the Bible's not real, read to them Daniel chapter 11. It's so clear. With a little history book next to us. But Daniel's not writing history. He's writing prophecy. And predicting it. Boom, 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 boom. Right on time. And we're only in verse 6. Verse 7. From a branch of her roots one shall arise who shall come with an army against the king of the north and prevail. He shall carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their possessed precious articles of silver and gold. He shall continue more years than the king of the north and the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the south but shall return. So here right in the midst of Daniel, he refers to Egypt as the king of the south. Okay, All right, so... Very clear there, makes it plain. So from a branch of her roots, one shall arise. Who's the her? The daughter. the daughter of the king of the south, Bernice, right? So from her roots, one is going to arise. Now, if it's from her roots, who would it have to be? What type of relation? What? A child, a child but yeah, her child died. So where else, what are the roots would they be? Her brother, exactly. Her brother arises, boom, right on, right? Her brother arises, Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, arises to replace his father and to, to, uh, to um, avenge his daughter, I mean his sister, to avenge his sister, and so he goes and he attacks the king of the north, exactly like he says, and he wins, and he carries the gods of the captives of Egypt to Egypt, with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold. And he's hailed as a hero back down in Egypt in the south. He, look at this. He won this battle for us. He avenged our name and he avenged our queen and, and he goes there and he, he's, he's heralded as a wonderful king to them. Just as it says. He goes back there with his riches and on the way back, actually, as he's backing again in the middle, right? So he goes to the north. He, he avenges for his sister's death and he On his way back, he stops in Israel. He stops in Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple, and he gives offerings thanking the God of Israel. Now, I have no doubt he was thanking all the gods in the whole entire world at that point. They brought back a bunch of their gods. But he did stop and gave praise to the God of Israel. He thought that was significant, and and he stops there and does that. So he does that and he comes and he says with the gold and he shall continue more years than the king of the north. And he did, he outlived the king of the north by I think about four years. And the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the south, but shall return. And sure enough, just like it says, the north tried to win it back. They came and attacked the king of the south, but they didn't win and they had to go back. They had to retreat and they had to return. Exactly as it says. Do you think God really cares about Bernice and Laodice and Ptolemy III? Not so much. He does, yes, he does. He loves them. But he's showing that God knows their future and God knows your future as well. God cares about you just as much as he cares about Bernice and Laodice and Ptolemy III and all these various guys. But it's showing God knows and God cares. God knows in advance. He knows the end and the beginning. He knows it all. He knows where we've been from. He knows where we're going. He knows how this earth started, and he knows where it's going. We don't have to fear the future. He's got your life in his hands, and maybe you're in the midst of, again, an uncertain time in your life, and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but God knows what's going to happen tomorrow. We're in his hands. Rest in him. Trust in him. Have faith in him. And that's one of the main purposes of these prophecies. It's not so that we can have a history lesson about Bernice. It's so that we can be assured God's word is truth. And God cares and he knows. Sometimes we feel like no one knows. No one knows what I'm going through, right? There's even a song. No one knows the troubles I've seen, right? (laughs) I'm off key there a little bit, right? <laughs> but God knows, right? So I don't feel like no one knows, no one understands. God understands. And God knows. God sees into the future. And He cares about you. Verse 10 His Son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through. Then he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. The king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hands of his enemy. Again, very plain. His sons, this is the king of the north, right? His sons, right? So they got defeated. So his sons, right? Because the king of the south outlived the king of the north. So the king of the north, who comes along? To avenge them, they lost their gods, they lost their riches. Who comes along? What does it say? His sons, his sons exactly. His sons come along. Well, that's what we should be looking for in history, right? Does his sons come along? We'll see in a minute. And they assemble a great multitude and a great army, and they go back down to attack the king of the south, and they move at him, and the king of the south moves that with rage against them, so they're both raging at each other again, right? That's what it says. And he moved at them, and they go out and fight with the king of the north. They muster a great multitude, but who wins? The king of the south, right, because the king of the north is the, uh, is the aggressor, but the multitude shall be given into the hands of his enemy. All right? So the one that has the multitude is the one who loses, according to the prophecy. Let's check our history books. The son of Seleucus II of the north Seleucus III and Antiochus III, so his two sons, assembled a great army against Ptolemy of the south. And in 219 BCE, Antiochus III began a campaign for southern Syria and Israel by retaking the port of Antioch. He then set out on a systematic campaign to conquer Israel from his rival, Ptolemy IV of the south. Verse 11 describes the Battle of Rafia on June 22, 2017 BCE, where Ptolemy IV of the south came against Antiochus III of the north near the Israel-Egyptian border. Both armies used trained elephants in this battle. And despite being outnumbered, Ptolemy of the south won the battle because the other army lacked discipline. So just like it said, his sons, the two sons, come together. Seleucus III and Antiochus III, they join together, they come together, and they go with a great army, with elephants and all like that, and they go and attack the south, and the south comes back at them with elephants, but not as large an army, and the south wins. Exactly like we read. Unbelievable. I find it so fascinating. Not the history, I mean, it's all wonky history to me. But I find it fascinating that God wrote it ahead of time. If I was just writing, reading this for history purposes, a history book, be boring as anything. But knowing that God wrote it ahead of time, God gave it to Daniel ahead of time. That's the amazing thing, the verity of the Word of God. We can talk about experiences, oh, answers to prayer, or experiences that we had, or feelings that we had, or you know. But it can't debate prophecy. They could say you were a nut job. You really didn't see that. You really didn't experience that. Or you just, it was feelings or emotions or, you know, you ate too much or drank something or whatever. You know, that, you're, that's your nutshell crazy thing. But prophecy, such clear prophecy, one right after another, king after king after king, laying it out, sons, you know, just not the, king of, the kings of the north, right, lays it out exactly how it's going to take place. You really can't debate that, the verity of the Bible. All they can say is, well, maybe it really wasn't written by Daniel. <laughs> maybe it was written many years later. That's the best that they can come up with. So we just, so that in the same time period that we were just looking at in or 218 BCE, this is a map of that area. And so we see there in the yellow, uh, we have the city of Antioch, right? So the city of Antioch is named after Antiochus, right? That was another kind of kingly name. Antiochus III we just saw mentioned there. So again, it's not that there's anyone really named Antiochus. It's again like king or president or Caesar or Ptolemy, right? It's just another title. So the city of Antioch is named after that, uh, like Caesarea, you know, named after Caesar. right? so we have the yellow there. That's the Seleucus kingdom, the kingdom of the north. They expanded, they ended up taking over one of those other Greek uh, segments. Uh, Greece is still separate there. And then in the south, we have the king of the south, we have the green over Egypt. Now we see at this time period in history, uh, the green is covering Jerusalem and even going north there on that sliver up, up, up north into what's today Syria, or actually Lebanon, right? And that's exactly what we're seeing written in history and in prophecy. That at this point, the king of the south it has Israel is gaining more control over than the king of the north. Okay. Now there's one really other big player in this Mediterranean Sea. We've got the big yellow, we've got the big green as far as land mass, and the next biggest player, we've got a couple of little colors there, but the next biggest is the light blue, and that's Rome. And about this point in time, we're going to see Rome start coming into the picture more and more, okay? Just like the picture shows, just like the map shows, just like the, uh, the janitor wrote, just like Daniel wrote, just like the historians wrote. Daniel 11, verse 12, When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail... And the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment. Okay? So when he, that's Ptolemy of the south, the, Ptolemy the fourth of the south that we've been talking about, the verse before we we're talking about, has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, right? So he just won this big battle and so now his heart is lifted up and it's like the other guy, he decides to stop at Jerusalem also. But unlike the other guy who goes there and gives offerings, this Ptolemy the Fourth decides he wants to see the inside of the temple. I want to go in there. I want to go enter into the temple. And the Levites say, No, 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 no. I'm sorry. No one except the Levites and not even the other Jews are allowed in here. Certainly you're not allowed in here. Sorry, King. uh, You're not allowed in. And so he gets mad. And what does the next part of the Bible say? And he will cast down tens of thousands. So he lifted up, he's thinking, I'm great, I won this battle, and so now I can go anywhere I want, I want to go into your temple. They say, nope, he gets mad, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. So what do you think is gonna happen next? What's he gonna do? Kill tens of thousands. He goes back to Israel, back down to Egypt and Alexandria, and I should have showed you that on the map, where a lot of Jews were living. He killed 40,000. 40,000 is tens of thousands of Jews. But he will not prevail. He dies at the age of 37. So he doesn't last very long, just as the Bible predicted. Line by line by line. I think it's amazing. Verse fourteen, Daniel chapter eleven. In those times, many shall arise up against the king of the south. Right. So he just died. Ptolemy the fourth died at the age of thirty-seven. So he doesn't have a young, uh, old, uh, you know, uh, old enough young guy coming up after him. And so his five-year-old son becomes heir. He died at 37, and so now a five-year-old is ruling the kingdom. Everyone goes, a oh, five-year-old, we can take him now. Now is our chance. Right? And so they say, many shall arise against the king of the South. And that's exactly what happened in history. Also violent men, I believe this is Rome and Antiochus IV Epiphanes, robbers of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. Okay, so violent men. Did the Roman kingdom become violent and rob the people? Certainly did, yes? Taxation beyond measure, right? And how about Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes? Does that name sound familiar at all? Where does that name sound familiar from? it? Maccabees, exactly. That's the Hanukkah story. That's the Hanukkah Antiochus. Right? Again, a lot of Antiochus. This is Antiochus Epiphanes. He comes on the scene, and he certainly was a robber of the people, and he certainly was a violent man. He tried to enforce uh, no circumcision, no Sabbath-keeping, eating pork, and all the kinds of things, and again, uh, taxes above measure. So very violent and a robber of the people, but he shall fall, is the prophecy. Right? And so robbers, violent men, shall come on the scene next. And now Rome is starting to come on the scene, and Antiochus the fourth is the next one in the north. The king of the north shall come and build a siege mount and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. And this can be talking about the Battle of Panem in 201 and 200, which ended the Fifth Syrian War and expelled Egypt from Israel, once and for all. Okay, so up to this point, we saw Egypt was gaining power over the north and and had Israel as part of it. The line had moved up, but now they come down, and a uh, warpaniam more. War. That's where the city of Pan. Right, uh, it, it's uh, it's after the uh, the the uh, the god of Pan. Um you know what the god of Pan looked like? Pan pipes. That's right. The, Right, uh, like a goat with a man's body, and he played the, 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 the pan, that's where we get the pan pipes from, he played the, the, the flute, right? and he would attract people to follow him. Right, and, uh, and this is up in an area in Israel that's called Banyas, and it's called Banyas because the Arabs can't pronounce the P, and so instead of saying Panyas, they called it Banias, ban, and so it got Ban, Banias, and that's where, but it's also called in the Bible Caesarea Philippi, And Yeshua takes his disciples there. And we've taken groups there. Some of you have been there and been to the very spots where there's uh, the temple to the God of Pan is located. And so this is where this battle takes place. And so this nullifies Egypt's influence over Israel after this fifth Syrian war of the king of the north, king of the south, as far as those players go. He, Rome, who comes against him, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, and will do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. So Antiochus IV, as he comes down, and again wins that battle, he comes down then into Egypt, and he goes down into Alexandria, and while he's there, Antiochus IV is there, Egypt again, this young king, and so he calls help to Rome. And Rome comes, and they send an ambassador, and I think his name is Pompilius, And he comes down, and here's a painting of it. Again, so it's a famous enough historical account that someone painted a painting of it. There's a number of them. This is one of them. And he draws a circle. Pompilius there on your right with the white cape. He draws a circle around Antiochus Epiphanes. And he says, do not get out of that circle until you agree to surrender and leave Egypt. Egypt. He thinks about it, I don't know how long, (laughs) and then he agrees to leave Egypt, and then he can step out of his circle without getting killed, and they escort him out of Egypt, and he goes back home with his tail between his legs. And so this is the defeating of Antiochus, the downfall of Antiochus' epiphany. So again, he's not some great, powerful thing, as some misinterpreters of Daniel try and make him to be, he, he falls, he gets pushed around by Rome as it comes to play and protecting this young king, and then he goes on his way home. He also stops in Jerusalem, and he finds out, the Maccabee story, the Hanukkah story, that uh, the, 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 the priest that he puts over the temple, that he assigned there is his puppet, uh, Israel thought he was dead, they thought he died there in Egypt, and so they re- kicked out his guy, and they put in their own guy. He finds out about this, and he's furious, plus he's also not happy that Rome is pushing him around. So if he can't push back at Rome, and he can't push back at Egypt, he goes home and he kicks the cat on his way, right? So he goes and, and slaughters, again, I don't remember how many Jews, tons of Jews, and, in in around Jerusalem. And he goes back up, and this begins the revolt the Maccabean Revolt, as he starts to crack down more, and so they revolt against him, and a bunch of Jewish farmers, and that's an oxymoron, a bunch of Jewish farmers fight against this powerful army of the north who just beat the south, and, you know, with their elephants, and they fight against him, and they win. <laughs> so just as the prophecy said, he will fall, and just as it says here, Rome comes in against him, he will do according to his will, and no one will stand against him. Right? Does Rome come in? Does anyone stand against Rome from here on out? No. Rome comes in, and just as it says, he does as he wills. Draws a circle around the king. Don't get out of that circle or I'm going to kill you. I don't care what you got your whole army here. We got fleets out in the the Mediterranean, and he, he won't get out of the circle, and he surrenders. Right? He does according to his own will. And nobody stands up against him, just as the prophecy says. And Antiochus falls, and that begins the fall of the Seleucus kingdom. And so then Rome comes in and takes the place of the Seleucus kingdom as the king of the north. And so as we see on our map here, uh, the, all of those colors there eventually become the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire eventually, by the year uh, AD 117, ruled the entire Mediterranean. Any ship that enters into the Mediterranean Sea or of any port around the Mediterranean Sea is from Rome. Rome rules it all. There's a lot of power there. And most of the Black Sea as well. But in the process of winning nations, you start with the purplish color, and that's Rome by the time of Julius Caesar, 44 B.C.E. Right, and then you see the green. Okay, so by that time, the Syria, Antiochus area, Seleucus area, uh, the, where it says Syria down here. So by Julius Caesar, that's already conquered. So that's conquered first with these other areas. That's conquered, right, and so this is all part of that Seleucus kingdom. Right, so all of Greece is now falling. But then the green comes next, and there's Alexandria. Egypt gets next, another 60 or so years later. So from 168 or so, that's where the Maccabean story, Maccabee story uh, takes place, till 44 BCE. These other areas start getting taken by Rome. Rome gets more and more powerful, and so it takes that first. So it now becomes the king of the north, and it begins then to battle against the king of the south. So we have a new king of the north, it's still the king of the north, but now it becomes Rome. King of the south is still the same king of the south. And so now we start having those battles there, and that continues through Augustus Caesar, and that's what we should be expecting to see in the prophecy. That's, again, a historian map. Does Daniel's prophecy match up with that? Let's see. Now we're moving further and further away from Daniel's time, does he remain accurate? Is the telescope still as accurate as it was? Let's take a look. Verse 16, he, Rome, shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. How is Rome described in Daniel chapter 2, the statue? right? What metal is Rome? Iron. And how is he described? He'll be like iron, as strong as iron, crushing and devouring. And here? Daniel chapter 11, he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. And that's what Rome did. It went and it crushed everyone underfoot, right? charging, walking across the Mediterranean area. He shall stand in the glorious land. Did Rome then come into the glorious land and rule over the glorious land? It certainly did. And no one able to stand against him from that time on. So they rule over the glorious land, they move in, so Rome is this next power coming in, the Roman Empire. Verse 17, He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him. Okay. So he shall also set up his face to enter the strength of his whole kingdom. Right. So he's entered into the glorious land He's entered into Antiochus, this area there, the Seleucid area, and now he's entering into the whole of his kingdom, the whole Mediterranean. He's moving and moving and moving and conquering the whole area, the whole kingdom. All right? Well, who is that? We just looked in history. Where are we in history? Verse by verse. Who's this? Rome. Which person in Rome? Where are we in history? Where are we going? Verse by verse. Who's the first main. Ruler of Rome, that's conquering and gets the title. Caesar, very good. Which Caesar? Which Caesar? Very good. Julius Caesar, okay? So Julius Caesar shall set his face to enter the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. He shall give him, who would this other he then be? Who's been the battles? The king of the north and the king of the south, right? So now the king of the south. He shall give him the daughter of women. Who's the daughter of women? Who's the daughter of women? Cleopatra. Cleopatra very good. All right, you, take, you come in. You preach it from now on. That's what, you got it. That's simple. That's right. You can do it. There you go. That's it. Very simple. That's what the Bible says, right? And to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be for him, right? So he, Julius Caesar, shall also set his face to enter the strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him. He shall give him the daughter of women, Cleopatra, to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him. Cleopatra joins with Mark Antony, Caesar's enemy, or be for him. Exactly what the Bible says, right? And a movie, right, a movie made that's right. So, yeah, so, again, anyone doubts the Bible, they say, oh, the Bible's not real? Just open up Daniel chapter 11, verse 17, and read it to them. That would be one thing if we just pull that verse, just that one verse out, and say, see here, it says daughter of women, that's Cleopatra. Ah, How do you get that? Well, we've been building for the last 17 verses, and going verse by verse, and it's been tracking with history, year by year by year, right? We didn't push this in there in the middle. We didn't just say, oh, let's find Cleopatra somewhere and shove her in somewhere. We've just been looking, looking, okay, this is where we are. Rome is coming in, the Maccabees, and Antiochus IV, and what's the next major thing that starts taking place? Rome starts coming in, enters the glorious land, and then what's the next move that South makes to try and make? We're in Julius Caesar's time, and we have Cleopatra right on the scene. Right? So it's just going right through. And again, plain words in Daniel chapter 11. If you follow those principles we mentioned in the beginning of this sermon, understanding Daniel and Revelation becomes very simple. Staying with the blueprint of Daniel chapter 2 and applying it across the board, it all just plays out one verse after another. God is real. His word is truth. And if we can depend on him with prophecy, we can depend on him with promises as well. His promises are true. We know he is reliable because he's reliable in the prophecies. And we know since he came through with the prophecies, he'll come through with all the promises that his word gives us. That's how we can trust him. That's why we can trust him. After this, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall take many, but a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and not be found. Okay? So now this, after this, he, so it's the same he, after this, he, shall turn his face to the coastlands, right? So he's been looking at the whole kingdom and conquering and conquering. Now he's looking at the coastlands and these islands, Right? And so we still got Julius Caesar here. And what does Julius Caesar say as he goes and conquers these coastlands and conquers these islands? Anyone remember the famous line? Very good. All right, exactly. Right? Julius Caesar, he shall turn his face to the coastlands, he shall take many. Vini, vidii, vici. I came, I saw, I conquered. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. He goes and faces the coastlands, but a ruler, Brutus, shall bring a reproach against them to an end, and with reproach removed, he shall turn back on him. Then he, Julius Caesar, shall turn his face towards the fortress of his own land. He goes and conquers and conquers and conquers. He comes back to his own land. He comes back to Rome, and he's sitting there in Rome, but he shall stumble and fall. What happens to Julius Caesar as he sits back on his throne, surrounded by, he gets killed, right? By who? By who? His buddies, right? What's the famous line there that he says? Eat too, Brutus. You too, Brutus? You too? Right? He should come to his own land, but he shall stumble and fall. He doesn't fall in battle out in the coastlands. He doesn't go and fall in battle in Egypt. He doesn't go and fall in battle in, in anywhere of in these far-reaching Mediterranean. It's back in his own land that he stumbles, not knowing what's going on, not catching what's going on. Right? That's a stumbling. For his own buddies to kill him, that's a stumble. Right? He stumbles. That's how the wording is. He stumbles. He can count his enemies out there. He can read through them. He can see their deploy. He knows what they're planning and he's got them and he is able to attack and he's able to win these mighty battles against all these enemies. But he stumbled because he didn't see the enemy in his own house. Stumbles, messes up, blows it, lets his guard down. He stumbles and falls in 44 BCE. Bleeds to death at the feet of a statue of Pompeii and not be found. Amazing prophecies. And then it's going to take us right to our day. With as specific as it is with these guys, it's going to get as specific to our day. The other ones were kind of general, general, you know, It's getting real specific. We're going to see our day, not tonight, not tonight, how specific it gets. Verse 20. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. Well, who's after Julius Caesar? Augustus Augustus Caesar. And what does Augustus Caesar do? What does the Bible say Augustus Caesar does? He imposes taxes. That's exactly what Daniel said. In Luke chapter two, verse one, I think it is. It says, Augustus Caesar imposed taxes and then imposing the taxes, what did that cause to happen? Why is it mentioned there? What? But what had to happen? Why why is that mentioned in the Bible that he's imposing taxes? In reference, what's the whole reference there? What's the whole chapter about there? Luke chapter two. What did that cause to happen? Wasn't like Joseph, Joseph and Mary had to leave Nazareth and go to Bethlehem because they had to register for the taxes? Oh. That's how they end up in Bethlehem to have the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem because that's what's prophesied. So it's mentioned in Luke chapter two, but it's mentioned in Daniel. And again, we could just pull that out and just throw that in there and say, "Oh, look, imposing taxes." No, but we've been going all 20 verses. In the timeline of the verses, we're not jumping around here and there. It's just following this timeline. And we get to this place in the timeline, and it mentions the next guy is going to impose taxes. And the next guy is Augustus Caesar. And what does he do? He imposes taxes. Exactly what the Bible says. It's so amazing. So amazingly accurate. Verse after verse after verse after verse. Imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. Again, he's ruler over the whole entire Mediterranean Sea, but it specifically mentions the glorious kingdom. No doubt he imposed taxes everywhere else, but it specifically mentions the glorious kingdom. Why? Because the Bible's going to mention it as well so that we can see the connection without a doubt that this is exactly who it's talking about. And he dies, not in anger, not in battle. He dies of old age. So Augustus Caesar. <laughs> Verse 21. In his place shall arise a vile person, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Who comes after Augustus Caesar? Caesar. No, not the fiddler, not yet. After Augustus Caesar, who's the next Caesar? I'll give you a hint. There's a city in Israel named after him. Some of you have stayed in that city. I've slept in that city. How many cities have you stayed in in Israel? (laughs) I'll give you a hint. It's not Jerusalem. (laughs) Where's the other city you guys stayed in? Tiberius, Tiberius Caesar is the next one on the scene. And he's a vile person, horrible person. Historians write about how horrible he was and how vile he was. And it also says here, in his place a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. So it's Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius was at first denied the throne by his stepfather Augustus just as it said, to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. But later on, after Tiberius' mother continued to press Augustus, he gave in to her wishes. Plus a number of the people that he had hoped to raise up to take his place, they don't make it, they die, and things happen. Uh, and I don't know if there was maybe some conspiracy theory, the conspiracy taking place, but they, they don't make it up. So Tiberius is left there. It, the, his wife keeps on nagging him and nagging him and nagging him. He comes in peaceably and seizes the kingdom by intrigue, using his mother to get him in, because he's not given the honor of royalty, but it says he will arise in the place of the one before him. So eventually he gets to that spot, but not given to him but through intrigue. And that's exactly what happened. Augustus didn't want to give it to him. Refused to give it to him for quite some time. But he ends up getting it through the intrigue of his mother. Exactly what the Bible says, exactly how history plays out. And exactly as it continues to say, is exactly how the future of this earth will play out. God wins. Israel's in the midst and God wins and wins and wins and God will win at the end. It's going to seem dark. It's going to get troublesome. It's going to seem like God's losing. At times now, it seems like God's losing. But God wins. God cares. God understands. God knows. And God wins. Stay on his side. Trust in him. Verse 22 And with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. Tiberius used force to keep his retractors away, but he was eventually suffocated with pillows. Vile man, they eventually got tired of him and they suffocate him. But he uses force of a flood before him, but he's going to be broken. And he was broken. Not dying peaceably like I mentioned some of the others. He is broken. He gets suffocated. And also, who will be broken, also the Prince of the Covenant. Who's the Prince of the Covenant? The Messiah. Yeshua, the Messiah, the Prince of the Covenant. Just as it says in Daniel 9, he shall keep his covenant with his people for one week, and in the midst of the week, he shall be cut off. I'm not talking about the anti Messiah. That's the Messiah who keeps the covenant. It's the Messiah who's the prince of the covenant. It's the Messiah who's the prince of the covenant. And verse 22, after verse 21, verses up to 22, we've been tracking right along from Daniel's day, right from the time of the the king of the north and the Persian, three kings after him, and then the fourth king that's Richard. All the way through, we come to this time. Julius Caesar, we come to... Cleopatra and we pass Bernice and all that. We come boom, 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 right at time. Come to Tiberius, a vile one, imposes taxes, and then right in place. Next verse the Prince of the Covenant gets broken. And that's exactly what we should expect. Looking back, knowing history, if prophecy is correct, then that's exactly where we should be. And that is exactly where we are in the prophecy right on time, right at the right verse. Yeah, I mean, pull this verse out there and just throw it in there. It's there, and it's there right after verse 21, after verse 20, after verse 19, right on time. God came on time. The Messiah came on time. He was born on time when they were imposing taxes, and he's broken right on time at the end, uh, towards the end of the 70-week prophecy in that midst of that last week of the 70 weeks of that prophecy of Daniel chapter nine. Right on time. God is right on time. And God's gonna be right on time for you as well. Might seem like he's delaying, might seem like he's sleeping, might seem like he doesn't know, he doesn't care, but God is on time. He's got his plans for you. He's got his plans for this world. And he's taking us step by step through that process. Trust in him. Wait upon him. He will see you through to the very end. Hold fast to him. And here we are. It's almost the middle verse of this chapter. And then we're going to close for the night on this chapter. We're going to pick up. It gets continually more exciting as it gets to our day. But right here, it's about the middle of the chapter. There's 40-something verses in this chapter. We're at verse 22. So again, the Messiah is in the midst. He's in the middle. He's the pinnacle of it all. He's the pinnacle of history. He's the focus of all the chapters. He's the focus of all the prophecies. He's the focus of all the Bible. He needs to be the focus of all of our lives. Through and through, we live for him, exalt him, glorify him. And he's in the middle. He's in the midst. He's in with us. Stay in the middle. And we feel pulled Between God and Satan, feel pulled in your life, circumstances, situations, issues, problems, people, maybe all of those together, and you're being pulled all over the place. God is in the middle with you, He's in the midst with you, and He will see you through as we trust in Him, hold fast to Him. Don't worry so much about the King of the North and the King of the South and who's winning and who's losing. They're all going to lose. God is going to win. Keep your allegiance with him. Keep your focus on him. Trust in him. God's word is truth. And the prophecies here, I think, prove it more than anything else out there. And if he's correct over and over and over again in Daniel chapter 11, then he's correct in Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 3. And he's right in Revelation Chapter 20, Revelation 21, and Revelation 22. He's right all throughout it. God's word is right. God's word is truth. From beginning to end. And he will fulfill it in our lives just as surely as he fulfilled it in Bernice and Cleopatra and Julius 1 and Julius 2, and Julius 3 and Antiochus 1 and 2 and 3. Ptolemy 1, 2, 3 and all of the rest. He'll fulfill his will. In your life. Because he knows you. He understands you. He cares about you. And he loves you. Let us pray together. If you're feeling more secure in God's word and trust. If you're in the middle of a battle right now. As we pray. Surrender it to God. Surrender the issue to God. Let him work. Let him do his work. Trust in him and let him fulfill his will. Rest in him, wait upon him. Secondly, if your faith has been strengthened in the word of God at seeing this prophecy fulfilled, in a moment when we pray, just thank God and praise him even more for strengthening your faith. And if you want to share this with someone else, ask God to open up the doors. If you know someone who doubts the Bible, who ridicules the Bible, ridicules miracles, ridicules your faith, ridicules your testimony, doesn't believe it, needs evidence, ask God to give you the power and the timing to share this with them. And if God is speaking to your heart in some other way or shape or form, let God do his work in your life. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you that you are the prince of the covenant. You are the prince of the promises. And even though you were broken, the prophecy doesn't end here. You are raised and you live and you will fulfill your promises in our lives. We want to lay hold fast to those promises. Lord, see us through. Take Take care of us. Hold our hand and walk us through the plans that you have for us. Give us hope. And trust, plans not to hurt us or harm us, but to do your goodwill in us and through us. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.